Yes. Dear Saints, we'll go on to Philippians now as we proceed in our general subject from Colossians to Philippians. Saints, it's uh, an item in the autobiography of many saints that as they pursue the experience and enjoyment of Christ, at a certain point in their trajectory, in their experience, something happens. And they realize it's different now. It's different. This experience, notable in the tribal transfer of Hiram, the builder of the pillars of the temple, should be the experience of every believer as they seek. And saints, these matters we're touching are so precious, so marvelous, so breathtaking that we may not point to these particular messages or, but I testify that for me, they have had this kind of effect. So our title is Persevering Unto Unceasing Prayer for the Lord's Imminent Return as seen in the book of Philippians. Roman number one says, jointly positioned in the heart of the divine revelation. The book of Colossians is closely related to the book of Philippians. Now you may have noticed that in the sequence of these two messages, we didn't go in the scriptural sequence in the order of the biblical sequence of the books. We didn't start with Philippians and go to Colossians as in that sequence and also as in our brother's uh, life study, crystallization study, and the recent conferences that we've had on these two books. It was Philippians, then Colossians. Why then? Colossians, and then Philippians. Maybe you wondered. Well, one reason is that the recent conference, the most recent conference in Lord's Recovery, was on Colossians and was on the danger and the hazard that culture would displace our experience of Christ and how the book of Colossians has this as its perhaps central significance, and purpose of writing. And so we start with with Colossians. But as these books are together in the divine revelation, in, in the heart of the divine revelation, they relate to one another in various ways, back and forth. And so there are other ways in which Colossians first Philippians 2nd. One of these is that the Lord is the head in his resurrection. He became head 
of the body. First, he resurrected. He became the firstborn son of God. Then he regenerated all of the all of his chosen ones to be his members and to produce the body as in his progression to be the life-giving spirit. So it's the head first, then the body. So we can say that the revelation of Christ in Colossians as the head leads us to the experience of him as the head in Philippians. And that experience of him in Philippians produces the body and the one new man as revealed in Ephesians. So even though in the scripture order, it's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, experientially, many times, or at least in this aspect, it's Colossians first, then Philippians, then the one new man, the bride as the body to end the age and bring the Lord back in Ephesians. So we have this sequence. Also, we could just refer to the revelation in Philippians. In chapter 3, verse 8, we have the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. No, not just that. We have the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. My Lord, oh, my Lord. As we are taken by an enlarging realization of all that he is, in particular, through the summit revelation of Christ in Colossians, we go from the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who as our Lord we want to experience to this subjective experience of him in Philippians 3.10. Oh, to know him, to know him. Saints, of course, in his recovery is this knowing that we're after. We're recovering the subjective experience of Christ. And so praise him. Praise him for the open book of Colossians, showing us our marvelous Christ in his all-inclusivity and all-extensiveness for our experience. Now we can pursue and go for, go for him. As we do that, as we do that, we find ourselves in the book of Philippians, the book on the pursuit of the subjective experience, and the book on what? The book on living Christ living Christ. So we pass on in our sequence from Colossians to Philippians, and then we have subpoint A. Just as in the book of Colossians, the revelation of the all-inclusive, all-extensive Christ is versus culture, our Thanksgiving conference, so also the book of Philippians presents the utmost subjective experience of Christ in contrast to culture. So 
as we'll see in the next uh, point, or as, as we'll see in the next uh, Roman numeral. Philippians 3, as one of the unexcelled chapters in the entire Bible, begins with Paul's declaration of how the experience of Christ effaced and displaced and discarded culture in his experience. So he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite, Hebrew of Hebrews. Our translation says Hebrew born of Hebrews. Some translations say Hebrew of Hebrews. The born is added. But don't you think Paul felt that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews? He was the top. He considered himself excellent. And since this is the, this is the destructive, subtle effect that culture has on us, we think we're someone. We think we're worthy. We think we're good at what we do, at what we are, as the product of our background. This was, this was Paul's confession. He felt he was Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, before the law blameless. But what things were gains to me, these I count as laws on account of Christ. So the point here in, in A is that we're continuing the line here in showing that not only in Colossians was there a need to displace culture, Not only in Job is there a need to displace culture. Not only in the Old Testament book of Proverbs is there a need to displace culture. But in the book of Philippians, on the experience of Christ and living Christ, Paul testified, culture has been displaced and effaced in my experience. So B says... Just as the principle of persevering unto unceasing prayer permits the displacement of culture for the sake of the progressing experience of Christ in his all-inclusive and his all-extensiveness, so also unceasing prayer is revealed as the key to living Christ for the utmost enjoyment of him. So we'll elaborate on this and we'll see. We'll see that uh, we can understand this book from the standpoint that the way we pursue, the way culture is neutralized in our experience and no longer hampers us and straitjackets us is through developing an affinity, an attraction, a gravitation, a movement toward the Lord with such, with such inertia, with such strength that nothing holds it back. And that this movement, this inertia, this impetus can be, has to be described by some words and is describable by a desire to pray unceasingly.
So in our verse references, in our verse references, we, we begin by <clears throat> Paul testifying, testifying here, that he realized that his, his imprisonment would turn out to salvation through the petition of the saints and the bountiful supply of Jesus Christ, of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that he had, that he had an earnest expectation and hope that in nothing he would be put to shame. Later we'll see the, the connection between that and unceasing prayer. The result is that he could declare that he would live Christ. And then in the last chapter, he summarizes by saying, eventually, saints, we need to have a being, an inner being, continuously moving toward him, marking displacement toward him, gravitating, closing the distance between us and him. So we'll see more about this. Okay, Roman numeral two. <clears throat> Thus, through persevering and unceasing prayer, as in chapter four, verses four and six, we are able to pursue the utmost experience of Christ, as in chapters th- chapter three, verses eight through sixteen, on to the inception of His ultimate parousia. Philippians 3.11 and 20-21, with the concurrent spontaneous displacement of our personal culture. So since one of, the, one of the, our emphases in these three messages is, it's wonderful that the experience of Christ displaces culture. And it's helpful to see that the way that we can have this accrue to us is through unceasing prayer. But to see, saints, that this unceasing prayer on to the utmost experience of Christ and living Christ brings us into the experience of his parousia to to merit the ultimate reward should be a great incentive to us. So we'll spend some more time on this as we go along. Here I'd like to also add, saints, if I could give you uh, a practical note here. The overruling in the experience of the believer of a living of unceasing prayer is the sense that Either I cannot do this, or this cannot be done. Focusing on the feasibility of unceasing prayer. Do you have that question? How do I pray unceasingly in my in my daily living? Well, the first thing that we have to realize is that this isn't a matter of practice. 
And if we realize this is what we are to do, this is what we can do, and this is what we must do, then we can set about to direct our attention, our priority, our energy toward doing so. So to make this real in our experience, Brother Lee talked about the practical balance for spiritual endeavor. We realize many things related to our spiritual practice. But our brother points out that we need to we need to bring into highlight, into focus, our need to address these things consistently in practice. So I'd like to refer to you uh, a couple of the uh, life study messages in the life study of Leviticus. Leviticus opens with the basic offerings, the revelation regarding the basic offerings. Then in relation to those, it gives a law of those offerings. Chapters 1 through 3, the revelation of the basic offerings. Chapters 4 through 6, those offerings are repeated with a law. In Life Study Message 25, our brother points out that this establishes a principle. Once we have the revelation related to something, we need to consider how to practice that revelation and then practice it, he says, yes, with consistently, with consistency, with dedication, with diligence. Yes, as a law. And so he gives he gives three portions, three New Testament portions that point out that Paul spoke about our applying, pursuing the Lord, and enlarging our spiritual experience through repetitive, dedicated practice. So these are 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Galatians 6, 15 and 16, and Philippians 3, 13 and 14. And we'll focus more in this message on Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But I refer you to these messages as they they show brotherly's heart that spiritual realization, understanding, and discernment is not enough. We need to practice, apply this in our living. And thus, these three messages. Also, the solemnity and importance of our practice of the spiritual principles is in Leviticus Life Study Message number 30, pages 269 and 270. Good. Let's go on now to Roman numeral three. Here, um, we'll come back now to what I hope um, made perfecting training and life messages friends of ours in the last message. So here in particular, those those portions I mentioned to you uh, in the last message were portions in these two publications related to what it is to endeavor to pray unceasingly, what it involves, what it looks like. Now, 
when we do that, that is to live Christ, which is the subject of the book of Philippians, according to these excerpts. So, Roman number three, representative guidance from life messages and from perfecting training indicates that it is through our persevering and unceasing prayer that we spontaneously live Christ as we pursue him in persevering prayer. We spontaneously live Christ for this utmost experience of him. So as I read these to you, read them also and pray them. Let's practice our unceasing prayer as we pray these and let them enter into us in an atmosphere of prayer. So the first one says, this is A, in a 24-hour day, how much of the time was I living Christ? So don't you appreciate Brother Lee's example to us? This concerned him. He said, how much of the time am I living Christ? What an example to us. Philippians 1.21 says, for me to live is Christ. To live Christ, as we saw in the last message, is one of the crucial New Testament imperatives. Oh, we are to live Christ. So what does our brother say? How much of the time in a typical day am I living Christ? Have you had occasion to inquire of yourself? Maybe at the end of the day, you've lain down, you're there with your head on the pillow. Lord, how much of the day today did I live Christ? This is a precious example to us, is it not? In a 24-hour day, how much of the time was I living Christ? By praying, I would come into my spirit, bring my inner being into my spirit, and live Christ. The more I prayed, the more I would live him. It goes on, B. Whenever you, wherever you are, and whatever you are doing, pray unceasingly to contact him within. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, pray unceasingly to contact him within. When this becomes, through practice, through endeavor, through living under a vision, a shining, when this becomes your way of living, you will be in spirit living Christ. This is what God wants. Further, see, as you converse with him, open, prepared, and available, he will work in you. So, saints, we converse hungry, absorbing, desirous, yes, available to him. How much of the time is he available to us? 
And how much of the time are we available to him? He will work in you, speaking and reacting. You and he, he and you will have one life and one living. This kind of life should not be occasional or accidental. Rather, keep focused on him, conversing with him. Then D, instead of living ourselves, we must practice living Christ. Don't we have a hunger for this? Don't we want to not live ourselves, but live Christ? Before doing anything, you can pray, Lord, you live in me. Pray in this way all day long. Then there'll be a consequence. You'll build up a habit always not to live yourself, but to live Christ. We develop a habit through our practice. Point E. Let me repeat. To live Christ, to practice the one spirit with the Lord, is by the continual and unceasing prayer. To have such a prayer life, we all must learn to watch. When you discover that there is something within you reluctant to pray, you have to fight against it. That resistance, that nonchalance, that passivity. We fight against it. F, to pray unceasingly is to pray that the spirit within you would never be quenched. So here we have a little equation. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 plus 1 Thessalonians 5.19 equals to live Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, as you know, unceasingly pray. Verse 19 says, don't quench him. Don't asphyxiate him. Don't hold him down. As we pray unceasingly, he's released. He's not quenched. We're there in vibrant, co-living and interaction. And this is to live Christ, to living as one. You have to pray that this kind of breathing prayer, you, you would have, you have to pray this kind of breathing prayer unceasingly in order to keep you living Christ. Amen. Gee, if you try to live Christ without praying, you will fail. Now there's quite a statement, huh? If you try to live Christ without praying, you fail. You have some kind of asceticism, some kind of uh, personal enrichment, some kind of polishing of, of uh, persona, but you don't have living Christ. It's as you develop this life of breathing prayer that you live Christ. 
Otherwise, you'll fail. Don't try to live Christ, but pray. (laughs) So we don't have to try to live Christ, although we realize this will be the result as we cultivate and release our life of prayer with the Lord. The The result will be our living Christ. But our goal is to contact him, to absorb with him, to be joined to him, contacting him through ultra-present prayer. Then we spontaneously live Christ. H, now, this may um, cause you to question something. H, if you are an an accountant working on books, are any of you accountants? Do any of you have to pay very careful attention to details, to numeric details? Things have to add up. You can't miss anything. This is the life of an accountant, is it not? If you are an an accountant working on your books, you have to keep praying. You have to keep praying. Don't do your accounting work by yourself. Do it with the Lord Jesus. And do it by having the Lord with you. So, word of testimony here. Okay, so I'm I'm a physician. Granted, I'm serving the Lord now, but um, still do some medical work. But that's my training. And so, do you think that um, a physician can unceasingly pray? They have to listen carefully, not miss details. If they miss details, they're subject to error, and errors are serious. Physicians usually have two or three things happening at one time, which they have to cover and be aware of. We have to multitask. So, brothers, my discovery is, yes, yes, you can be a physician developing a life of unceasing prayer. Not only can you, if you're a physician, you must be a physician developing a life of unceasing prayer. Now, some of you, I've seen a couple, some of you in the audience know me from the full-time training. Okay, some of you have asked the question, should I go into um, health profession? Should I go to medical school? And I told them, to be brief and to summarize, something like this. The direction that you take, what matters is your exploration of the yet to be laid hold of relationship with Christ that he's prepared with you and he intends for you to touch in your years of life on the earth. If you're ready to be a physician, pursuing that relationship and having it enlarge as you as you carry out your profession and your experience, go this way. If you don't think you can or don't think that would work, go another way. But whatever way you go, what's going to count isn't your years as a physician 
or your years as a mechanical engineer, or your years as an attorney, or your years as a pharmacist, what's going to count is how much progress you marked onto his coming, onto a secret appearing, by laying hold of his parousia. How? By pursuing, by persevering in prayer, onto unceasing prayer. So, if the question comes, the question comes, I don't think that works. I don't think that's practical. Here's my answer to that. In Colossians 2.6, Paul pointed out, it is practical. Because as you received the Christ, Jesus the Lord, you can continue in that same frame. And you must. And you should. And so according to Hebrews 8.10, the law of life written, infused into your inward hearts and inscribed in your heart is the new inwrought divine capacity for you to do what you think you can't do. And for you to do what you were unable to do before. But now you can. Now you can. So the verse goes on to say, I will be their God. Indicating that they will do something to make me their God. And then they will be my people. I will be their God by their choice, by their exercise of the um, inwrought gift, of the capacity to live in oneness with me, to speak to a colleague while they speak to me, to sing with me while they wash dishes or clean a table, to touch me while they take an exam, to register me while they're driving in their car. Yes, saints, we can be an accountant doing our accounting work in an atmosphere of unceasing prayer. That's the capability, the inwrought law of life. Roman number four, <clears throat> through unceasing prayer, we are able we are able to live him not only in extraordinary circumstances, but also in the ordinary and repetitive circumstances of our daily living and can be saved continually from the shame of not magnifying him. So, saints... Uh, what is the um, general characteristic of our accessing and our enjoyment of the influx of Christ as a person into our being and our resourcing him 
and applying him. It tends to be situational and circumstantial. And so we're just like the sequence in Philippians 1 and 2. Philippians chapter 1 shows us that Paul, while he was in prison, prayed unceasingly so that he could have the earnest expectation that he and nothing would be put to shame. And he modeled for us what it's like to live Christ in an extraordinary circumstance. And many of us do draw upon the Lord in special, unusual circumstances. But then we have Philippians chapter 2, where the frame is different. The frame is our daily living. Our daily living. And here, in Philippians chapter 2, we see that we can enlarge and refine our living of Christ by praying unceasingly in the detailed junctures and situations in our daily living, the small details, the things we don't remember or consider remarkable, we will remember and become remarkable when in them and with them we touch him and access him through persevering in prayer. So if I could uh, read with you this little excerpt again from Life Messages. Because it is so easy to slip out of Christ and revert to our living in ourselves, doing things by ourselves, saying things in ourselves, or loving others by ourselves, Paul exhorts us, to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Again, the context is in our daily living. This salvation is being saved by being wrought into and with him in the midst of the apparently unimpressive details of our daily living. We need to be saved daily, even hourly, from anything outside of Christ. We must be in fear and trembling to work out our instant salvation, lest we say a word outside of him, answer a question apart from him, or react in our feelings rather than in him. Do we ever react in our feelings? need to be saved. And the way we're saved is through our ongoing prayer, which we carry out with a sense of fear and trembling within, that we would do something outside of him. So, saints, now we'll just make a quick quick, um, review of Philippians chapters 2 through 4. And Be impressed, saints, that item after item, these things are impractical. They're ethereal. They're beyond us. They're out there. We couldn't do them. But if we pose and and condition our being 
in the frame of continuing prayer, persevering prayer, it becomes evident this was what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Pray and do this. Pray and do this. Unceasing prayer enables this. Unceasing prayer accomplishes this. So let's let's observe this. Hey, persevering unto unceasing prayer enables us to do all things without murmuring and reasoning. Philippians 2.14. Anyone here do all things without murmuring and reasoning? Well, as well-meaning good brothers and sisters in the Lord's recovery, there are two ways to approach this if we take it seriously. One is we can remember, oh, I shouldn't murmur. Oh, I shouldn't reason. And then maybe as I'm beginning to murmur, I catch myself, oh, shouldn't do that. I suppress it. Stop it. Don't do it. I reason, oh, what if, oh, why this, why that? I catch myself, no, don't think that way. Well, is that helpful? Yes, that's helpful. That's helpful. Is that what the Lord intends? It falls short. It's not, inv- it's not that it's not valuable, but it's, it falls short. What he wants us to do is engage him, grasp him, hug him, hold him, be with him, and spontaneously, there's no problem, and there's nothing to murmur about, and there's nothing to reason about, because if you consider, almost everything you reason about is insignificant. Almost everything you murmur about doesn't matter. And when you gain him, hold him, touch him by pursuing unceasing prayer, you realize, I used to care about, that doesn't matter. And the reasoning and the murmurings are not found in our being. Okay. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Point B, persevering on unceasing prayer also enables us to hold forth the word of life. Now, did you hold forth the word of life today? Do you know how to hold forth the word of life? Maybe to hold forth the word of life is to take the Bible and demonstrate it. The word is surely the word of life. Or you might say it's to it's to um, have a good Christian testimony is to have to hold forth the word of life. Well, according to the footnote, to hold forth the word of life, who is Christ, is for us to live Him. And the footnote indicates, and the context indicate, that for us to live Him. This is a matter of our contact with him, our embracing him, our holding him through our prayer. Also, please note that in Philippians 2.16, it combines living Christ and the rapture. Living Christ 
and the Lord's secret appearing. It says, holding forth the word of life so that I may have a boast in the day of Christ. This indicates that by the Philippians' whole living Christ, they, and to Paul's credit, Paul would not be put to shame in the day of Christ. So, what's going to happen in 2 Corinthians 5.10? The judgment seat of Christ? Well, actually says, I think if we're pursuing if we're pursuing unceasing prayer, we don't have to worry that much about it. But as we trace these verses, we realize the question is going to be, how much was this inclination, this setting, this moving, this marking of displacement toward me, closing the distance between us, how much was this of concern to you? This is the sense of 2 Corinthians 5.10. Then, see, as we persevere on unceasing prayer, we are spontaneously, subjectively righteous. Does righteousness ever come up as an issue in your personal life, your family life, your church life? Was that righteous? Was that righteous? Well, Paul in Philippians 3.9 points out that the righteousness he's concerned about is the righteousness referred to in Revelation 19.7 through 9, the righteousnesses of the saints to prepare the wedding garment. This is subjective righteousness. These are the righteousnesses of the saints. When we contact him in our endeavor to pray unceasingly, it's then that we're not found in our own righteousness. But we are spontaneously righteous through our cleaving to him through our prayer. Wonderful. What assurance. D says, as we persevere unto unceasing prayer, we spontaneously know him. As we know, to know him was Paul's quest from Acts chapter 9 onward, all the way to 2 Timothy chapter 4, his 3 and 4. His, his desire was to know him, to know him. He had an unsatiable thirst, hunger, and pursuit to know him. This caused him to pray and to urge us to pray unceasingly. So, our prayer isn't an activity, isn't... Um, simply an action or something we do. Our prayer is our being inexorably drawn to him by his indescribable, unquantifiable attractiveness and preciousness. As this releases continuing prayer from our inner being. We know him. We know him. And he knows us. 
So yes, 2 Corinthians 5.10 applied to Matthew 25 when all of us are there. The prudent virgins who are raptured first and the imprudent virgins who are raptured later and they meet together with him in 2 Corinthians 5.10, would you like him to say, I didn't know you? Whether he will know us then depends upon whether we want to know him now. And the way to know him now is by endeavoring, persevering, and unceasing prayer. Oh, then E. As we persevere on unceasing prayer, we spontaneously attain to the experience of the out-resurrection from among the dead. Philippians 3.11. So that knowing in verse 10 was so that was, if perhaps I go after him, seek to know him, if perhaps by any means I might lay hold of the out-resurrection of Jesus Christ from among the dead. The special, the award, the reward resurrection. What is that? Yes, that is Luke 21, 36. That is watching and beseeching at every time to prevail to escape the things that are to come and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the out-resurrection. So, as you enjoy the chapter on the out-resurrection from among the dead in the second half of the book of the experience of Christ, you'll see that every time you exercise to pray unceasing, every time you are resurrected. You are resurrected out of a situation of dullness of deadness, of passivity. You're resurrected into a living, vibrant touch with him. So the out-resurrection as a special reward involves a process through which we are resurrected out of our daily personal situation again and again and again and again, not because he resurrects us, but because we want to exercise onto him through our unceasing prayer. And as we do that, we're resurrected out of our circumstances and brought to new life in the new creation for the one new man. Then, F, as we persevere on unceasing prayer, we spontaneously advance toward the goal of the utmost subjective experience of Christ. So this point summarizes the whole message. This prayer propels, sets us, pushes us forward onto the utmost experience of Christ the relationship that he intends, the rapture situation where he would take us out of a common, ordinary existence 
into a human life filled with meaning, purpose, vibrancy, enjoyment in him. Outwardly appearing the same, inwardly absolutely different. And so unceasing prayer brings us to, uh, we'll, we'll have a little bit more on the closing point on this, the prize, the prize of the utmost experience of Christ. Then point G, as we persevere on unceasing prayer, we spontaneously live with him a life of forbearance. So, dear saints, um, Philippians 4, 5. Let your forbearance be known to all men. The Lord is near. If you are expounding this verse in relation to our consideration of unceasing prayer, what would you say? The Lord is near. He's at the doors. That means he's ready to come back. But when he can come back depends upon his being near to us in our experience, laid hold of by us, applied by us, real and vibrant, living within us, which is the result of our contacting him through this continuing prayer. Then we're a different person. Would you like to be an elder in the church where you are? Would you like that? All kinds of persons, all kinds of situations, all kinds of criticisms related to your, the elders, many failures and weaknesses. Can you forbear all the saints? Forgive everyone. Not be bothered by anyone. See nothing but the most positive and delightful aspects of everyone. And have a problem with no one. This is to make your forbearance made known to all men. This applies to the elders, but this applies also to every brother, to every sister. There should be, dear dear brother and sister, there should be no one who irks you. There should be no one who annoys you. There would be no one who causes you to be impatient or to react. Furthermore, there should be no one who offends you. And there should be no one who you can't forgive. If you can't live that way, then well, you, it's hard for you to be an elder and or a leading one. But it's also hard for you to be rapture ready. 
If you're going to stand before the Son of Man, you've got to be willing to and able to forbear with all the saints, not only all the saints, with unbelievers as well, and see them as God sees them, as a treasure to him. How does this become your strength, your virtue, made known to all men? It's by this cohen hearing. It's by this mutual touch. It's by this continual self-initiated, auto-initiated um, gravitation toward him where he can be everything to us, all-inclusively and extensively. Then, the Lord's near, and we're near to his coming. So H, as we persevere unto unceasing prayer, we spontaneously converse with him, in a living, safeguarded from anxiety. So <laughs> we've referred we've referred here to, to this verse. Uh, Philippians 4, 4, as you know, in everything rejoice, 4, 4, 6, in nothing be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. A summary statement, pray unceasingly. Here, make these known to God, as you know, in the Greek, has the action-laden preposition indicating movement toward. When we pray, we move toward. When we speak to the Lord, we move toward. As we move, as we move, as we move toward Him, then all the anxieties are gone, and uh, all of the foregoing aspects of living Christ in Philippians are spontaneously ours. So here we have uh, this little quote. Learn to converse with him. Learn to tell the Lord, Lord, I'm not ambitious in anything except loving you. Oh, I'm not ambitious in anything except loving you. I only want you, Lord. I only love you. Whatever you want, I want. But Lord, I must tell you that regardless of how much I want it, I won't do it. I just won't do it because I can never make it. I love you, Lord. This will be a big field in which you can go or to which you can go every day. Perfecting training. Page 222. Wonderful. Saints, our daily living is a big field in which we can be conversing with him, moving toward him, 
And as we do, we have a life of unceasing prayer. And annexed by us then is the relationship that the ages have shrouded in mystery, but has been prepared by those who love him, for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9, accessed and becomes ours. Then point I. As we persevere on unceasing prayer, we spontaneously spontaneously find ourselves empowered to do all things. So as you know, uh, Philippians 4.12 refers to Paul having found the secret. And that secret is to abound and be abased, etc. And that he can do all things in Christ who empowers him. And so, uh, saints, do we believe that in Christ we can do all things by praying our way into him that we can do all things? Well, what is it to do all things? To do all things in Philippians 4.13 is to live out the virtues in Philippians 4.8. the things that are well-pleasing to God and man, to live Christ. So saints, by unceasing prayer, we can live Christ and do and be what otherwise we could not do and could not be. Um, Let's see, I'm trying to see if I'm okay on time. Uh, Tim, am I okay on time? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, Roman number five. So here maybe we could spend a little bit more time on the privilege of his secret appearing and how this is the incredible reward that awaits us as we pursue him to live him in Philippians through unceasing prayer. It is by the persevering on unceasing prayer that we are able to live Christ as revealed in the book of Philippians. Forgetting thus the formerly important things, things that used to used to bear importance, now they don't. Remember how we began? Things are different now. Things are different now forgetting the formerly important things that are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before. Uh, <clears throat> and so saints in, in, uh, in these verses, we have um, stretching forward. Toward the, toward the goal for the prize for the prize. Now, <clears throat> the goal is the utmost experience of Christ. What is the prize? The prize is the sublime, indescribable enjoyment of him during the wedding feast of 1,000 years, during the millennial kingdom that lies ahead. This will be the the reward to, yes, the overcoming believers, those who, in simplicity, were able to live 
this kind of life of having the solitary goal of touching him, contacting him, having him be part of their life and being part of his through unceasing prayer. Point A says, reaching the goal of the utmost experience of Christ, Philippians 3.14. That's A. B, meriting participation in the Lord's secret appearing, the inception of the prize onto which God in Christ Jesus has called us upward. So Philippians 3.14 here says, to which God in Christ Jesus has called me upward. This is the heavenly calling, uh, the prize, the goal. We're called upward for this. This indicates, this indicates that this, we do ourselves a disservice perhaps if we consider that this goal, the almost experience of Christ in the millennial kingdom, just stretches out for a thousand years after the end of this age. But we have to realize that it has another portion. It has a pre-portion, a pre-portion that only his particular lovers will experience. During those thousand years, during those thousand years, uh, certain believers will be in a situation of non-participation and they won't enjoy, enjoy uh, that prize of the enjoyment of him in the millennial kingdom. But they also will not enjoy certain other things. If I could tell you just a little bit about this. Matthew 28, 20, the Lord says, I will be with you. Uh, Behold, I am with you. Behold, I am with you. On to the end, on to the consummation of the age. In Matthew 24, 3, the disciples asked the Lord about his coming and how would the consummation of the age be? In his answer, the Lord pointed out that the consummation of the age would be the final three and a half years of this age, the years of the Great Tribulation. So back to Matthew 28, 20, for him to be with us onto the consummation of the age means that he would be with us onto the beginning of the Great Tribulation. What begins the Great Tribulation? According to Revelation chapter 12, the great, the great Tribulation begins when there are sufficient numbers who have pursued him with all their heart to the degree that they're ready to be raptured. Luke 21, 36. Then they're raptured to the heavens. 
a unique experience that most human beings will not have. Upon arriving there, they will be instrumental to the casting of Satan down to the earth. Another marvelous experience of theirs. Meanwhile, they will stand face to face with the Son of Man. The bridegroom who is waiting for his bride. You recall the hymn which says, Oh, what an hour sweet when bride and bridegroom meet. Would you like to have that experience? Do you realize that most believers will not have that experience? That experience doesn't begin in a thousand years. That experience begins when, as in Luke 21, 36, the believers are raptured to the throne to stand before him and bride and bridegroom meet. And then spend who knows exactly how many time, how much time in the now begun parousia, where you're just there with him and others never will know what that's like for a period of time. Then you move with him, move with him to the clouds, to the air, and you witness the rapture of the majority of the believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you witness it. And you know, and they know, What's about to happen is you're all going to have have audience with the Lord. And it's as if you were all going to take a test, except you know you passed. And they know they didn't. What a joy. And then you hear those words, well done, enter in. Saints, do you want these experiences? Are they worthy? Are they worthy of reorganizing and reorienting your thoughts, your priorities, what counts to you? Well, of course they are. So in Philippians chapter 3, twice it tells us, uh, twice it refers to this. Um, both in verse 11, if perhaps I may attain to the out-resurrection from among the dead and the fact that for the prize, he's calling us, he's calling us upward. So we have here Philippians 3.6. What shall we do then? 3.16. Nevertheless, whereunto we have attained by the same rule, Let us walk. Here walk means our living. May our living of Christ, our walk, be according to this rule. What is this rule? To pursue him, to not let anything hold us back. And the way to pursue him, the key to living Christ, is to live him through unceasing prayer. So this is unceasing prayer, effacing culture, 
in Philippians. And tomorrow we'll go on to see the corresponding experience in the reality of Jesus.